Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. We've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to come together for a few minutes to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. We are a city-led network of nearly 100 city members around the world, working to build urban resilience that enables cities to thrive no matter the shock or stress faced. And I'm pleased you've joined us for this episode hosted with our partner, Smart Cities World, with sponsorship from our friends and co-conspirators in urban resilience, the World Bank. Cities are truly on the front line of delivering a future that is resilient, sustainable, economically robust, healthy and equitable for all of us. It is no small charge. At the Resilient Cities Network, we provide forums like this to bring together knowledge, practice and partnerships that support and encourage city leaders and urban practitioners in their efforts. Now, over to my co-host, Paul Wilson, chair of the Smart Cities World Advisory Board. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be doing this with you. I'm chair of Smart Cities World's Advisory Board, and every year more than a million people read Smart Cities World and 30,000 people are members gaining access to special reports and content. Members include officials from more than a thousand cities with new members every single week. And in the day job, I'm Chief Business Officer at Connected Places Catapult, the UK's innovation accelerator for cities, transport and places. Together, we're sharing ideas that solve urban challenges, bringing people together from the public, private, academic, and not-for-profit sectors. Our Urban Exchange podcast will take us around the world to meet people working on the front line. In the latest episode of Cities on the Frontline, Lawrence Hawkin catches up with leader of Glasgow City Council, Susan Aitken, to reflect on progress since COP26 in 2021, itself hosted in Glasgow, and to better understand the conversations that took place as part of this year's COP27 conference. Hello and welcome to the Urban Exchange podcast. I'm Lauren Sorkin, the Executive Director of Resilient Cities Network. And on today's episode, we are really, really enthusiastic about welcoming back to the Urban Exchange, Councillor Susan Aiken, who is the leader of Glasgow City Council. For those of you who don't know Susan, she has been the leader of the council since 2017, and she is the first Scottish National Party leader of the council. And under her leadership, you could not have missed that Glasgow was named the host of COP26, and it was under those auspices that we invited her to speak with us for the first time last year. And Glasgow has also been named a global green city and next year will be the European capital of sport. Last but not least, in terms of introduction, I do want to say Susan has been a champion to an issue that is near and dear to my heart and for her work to deliver equal pay justice for thousands of women in Glasgow. She was awarded Scottish Local Government Politician of the Year. So Susan, welcome back to the Urban Exchange. Thank you, Lauren. It's lovely to be here. So, Susan, you and I were together about two weeks ago now at COP27. And COP this year had a very different feeling than COP in Glasgow. 
yet it's been described as really a defining moment in climate action. What was your experience like at COP this year? And has it built up the momentum from Glasgow? I think in some ways it has. In other ways, clearly, it's fallen short. And I think the, the progress on loss and damage is, is obviously welcome. The less progress on, on fossil fuels. I think, though, every COP now is going to be a defining moment for climate action because the urgency and the need to act at pace is such that, you know, there is no time to waste. So there's, there's no um, hiatuses between COPs, if you like, where it used to be that every fifth year was the big COP. Now every COP is a big COP, and indeed all the time in between is big as well, is absolutely crucial. But from the point of view of, of cities, I think there was tangible progress from Glasgow as, as the whole city for COP26 made a real point of centering cities as much as we could and using our historic city chambers in Glasgow, um, that's the, the, the Scottish term for it, uh, we called it the World City Hall for that two weeks of COP and really wanted to highlight not just the work of cities and what cities are already doing, but how essential it is to put cities front and centre in climate action um, as the, the vehicles for delivery um, and, and really making the difference on the ground. You know, my kind of catchphrase has been nations pledge and cities deliver. And I got the sense at COP27 that that agenda is now being understood. Cities seem to me to be much more part of the mainstream agenda rather than around the edges or the fringes, if you like. The, the search initiative on, um, on urban action that was adopted by uh, the, the host presidency, I think was, was a big step forward, really encouraging. So those particular issues around cities, I think uh, there's definite progress. That's not to say there still isn't more to go. What we need to see is uh, ultimately is actually cities around the table and, and cities on the platform as well, making those contributions alongside national leaders and other key speakers. Cities pretty much as equal partners in, in delivering climate action along with nations. The other big difference, I think, was, well, not a big difference, but a step forward where COP26 saw finance and the financing of transition and that very practical focus of how we actually pay for this really coming to the fore. COP27, that was at the fore even more. And the, the discussions around how we actually get the resource into delivery of climate action, both in senses of mitigation and adaptation, I think took on a much more immediate and practical kind of atmosphere rather than hypothetical. I think at COP26, the conversations took place and, and because it was maybe the first time, they were very much about how do we do this? Why do we need to do this? At COP27, it was like much more, here's a project, you've got some money, how do we put the two together? And that's where absolutely where we need to be, where cities need to be, where financiers and, and international investors need to be. Um, and that's the, the agenda that we really need to progress at pace. So well said. It really was this atmosphere at COP27 of urgency, but also of really putting our investments where the talk is, right? Getting these projects financed, really putting into perspective what the scale 
of the investments required are to make the transition and looking at specific projects and actions and having cities involved in those conversations alongside their state and national partners was a much bigger part this year. At the same time that this has all been been happening, we've seen the IPCC reports highlighting the increasing intensity of the climate crisis. And, and you know, this year we've witnessed on a global scale, you know, heat waves that were unprecedented, the floods in Pakistan, here in, in Asia and the Pacific, we've seen intense flooding from Australia to Malaysia and so on. In that spirit of really translating ambition to action and moving ahead from this COP, what do you think are going to be those urgent conversations that we need to keep on, as you so well said, between the COPs, there's no time to stop. So what are those conversations that need to be had to really continue to translate this ambition to action, thinking about both climate and also the social justice angle? One of the things that's very interesting um, in the, um, I think, the most recent IPCC report is that they have really started to put an emphasis on adaptation as well as mitigation. So what, what they're saying is this is absolutely about net zero and about cutting emissions as quickly as possible. But precisely as you said, Lauren, we have more and more people in the world and more and more people in in parts of the world who may have been a bit complacent about this and may have thought that they were somehow immune to it are now suffering directly as a result of extreme weather events and the impact of extreme weather events, whether it's extreme heat, whether it's flooding, and then the the things that those contribute to, mudslides, for example, drought, all of the, the things that we know happen are happening not just in the global south, not just in, in emerging economies, but they are they are happening everywhere. You know, what the IPCC has has pulled out, and I think this is obviously particularly relevant in the context of resilient cities, is that both of these things need to be invested in uh, at the same time. We need to be investing in uh, reducing emissions at the same time as we invest in protecting our citizens from the impact of climate change that is happening right now and is happening in a very dangerous way. Literally, the loss of lives and livelihoods are happening right across the world now. That is incredibly important. It is an illustration of the gravity and the speed at which this is happening. This this is not hypothetical. This is not something that we need to plan for to preserve the future planet. It is happening right now. And so we, we need to be planning and investing on a number of different fronts. I think that's an incredibly important message and a very important conversation that needs to be had around the the financing of projects and cities. And so we need need to finance those projects which will reduce emissions over the the medium term, as, as short a term as possible. But by and large, we're looking at probably over a decade or so in, in the context of cities. Most cities, of course, have, have targets and ambitions that are more urgent than, uh, than the nations that they're within. Uh, but also we need to be in investing in, in those projects, things like flood defences, for example, which will have an impact in the next couple of years, you know, in some cases by next winter or by next rainy season or by next summer, you know, whatever is most relevant for the country. So I think that's incredibly important. And I think the adaptation piece 
is sometimes more difficult for cities. It's already a challenge for cities to get ourselves into the space of the scale of investment that we we need to attract and deliver for mitigation and for emissions reduction. Most cities don't operate in the context of multi-billion pound interventions. You know, that is relatively new for us. Most of us are not uh, geared up and, and we don't have the capacity or or the skills often to take on projects of that size. It's not the kind of investment that, that we're used to by and large. But there has been a lot of progress in giving cities the tools to get into that space and to understand how how to have conversations with investors who in the end are looking for commercial returns. Now, those might be long-term patient returns. They might be 30 or 40 years rather than 10 or 15 years. And that is exactly the space that we need to be in. But we are more and more understanding how we can have those conversations with investors which understand their needs and their um, what, what they need to, need to demonstrate in terms of their investment, as well as the outcomes that we need to deliver for cities, I think it's harder for adaptation. So that that's another conversation, and it's where resilient cities is incredibly important in supporting cities to understand this. How do we make a, a quite hard-headed case to investors about why they should also put their money into flood barriers or uh, tidal weirs, for example, which is is one of the things that we're really interested in in Glasgow, as well as into energy transition, for example, where the the profits and the commercial returns, to be blunt about it, are perhaps more obvious than they are for, for adaptation. So the need for those early conversations with investors and the need for cities to be have as much capacity as possible, particularly around the, the development stage of investments, but where we've now, I think, got that additional need which the IPCC has really spelled out is to understand how we do that for adaptation as well as for emissions reduction. The investments we need in our city systems, in infrastructure, to live in this new and disrupted climate future while continuing to decrease emissions are substantial, as you mentioned. How has Glasgow's recently launched action plan and framework helped invite in the kinds of partnerships and financing that are necessary for this work? I think it's, first of all, it's really helpful to have a plan, to have an actual plan that you can show to people to, to help them to understand what you're talking about. So we're not talking hypothetically here. We do have a clear set of actions that we want to deliver, that we understand that we need to deliver. I think what's also really important, and I think this is particularly important in cities in the developed world where, you know, there is sometimes that complacency, is that we can demonstrate to investors what the impacts are now, um, and they are escalating impacts. Now, for, for Glasgow, for a country like Scotland, that tends not to be around heat, but it is very much around flooding and flooding impact, which is escalating and becoming more frequent as well. And I think what we need to be able to do is demonstrate to the world of finance 
why this is an issue for them as well. It's not just a, a nice to have for the city. It's not just about inconvenience to our citizens. It is actually about very serious economic impacts, disruptive economic impacts that don't help business either. They don't help those who are operating within our economy, who need our economy to be resilient and to be sustainable. So being able to demonstrate to them why this is of direct relevance, I think is is really important. And having clear actions and, and clear projects that you can see we believe and we've got the evidence that if this investment is made, these are the benefits that will result in terms of building resilience, in terms of protecting not just our citizens and their households, but also our economy and society from the impacts of climate change. And so it's it's trying to take, you know, I think I used the term hard-headed earlier, taking that quite hard-headed approach to understanding what our investors are looking for. They're also really interested in delivering for the planet, in um, supporting citizens, in delivering social and economic transformation. But they're also, by their very nature, very pragmatic. They, you know, they're not making investments out of altruism or certainly not entirely out of altruism and those of us in the public sector do need to understand that and we need to we need to work to um to understand each other's mindsets the public and private sector and to recognize that they're they're not in competition with each other they're not inimical to each other ultimately we are all working in the same space to to deliver the same outcomes, we might have slightly different drivers. I, as a, a democratically elected politician, I'm always thinking of my constituents first and foremost and the impact on them. But in the end, what's good for my constituents is also good for the wider economy. It's good for business. It's good for investors. So being able to demonstrate that through having clear city plans, which can place what cities are doing within that wider context, I think is really important and extremely useful. That's been such a big and important role for Glasgow, Susan, in in the work that you've done with the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero is really bringing partnerships together and creating cohesive dialogue around what's required. What kind of lessons can we learn and leverage from that for resilience? I think first and foremost, what we need to understand is while this is a challenge for cities and it remains a challenge to to get the finance into into cities and into projects the finance is there and uh, there's absolutely no question that, that there isn't a lack of resource out there there are groups of investors and an increasing numbers of of groups of investors often very significant scale of institutional investors coming together putting their resources together and saying this is going to be used for climate finance this this is green finance but they need our help as well. They are sitting on trillions and trillions of dollars or euros and they need to understand where to put it. So that kind of, of partnership where we bring together the people who are developing the projects, the people who are who are actually creating opportunities for investment in ways that will have very, very real world impact for place and for people and for planet, bringing them together with the people who have got those 
trillions of dollars to put into those projects um, is incredibly important. But I think it's helpful for us to understand that when we are talking to investors, we can help them as well. This isn't, it isn't a one-way street where we're like, you know, you need to give us your money and, and we need to demonstrate our fitness to get that money, if you like. They're also wanting to understand where's the best place, where can they have the most impact? Where can they ensure that their investments will deliver quality? I think that's incredibly important. And it was something that came through very strongly for me in discussions at COP27, where these funds are, are coming together. They're not looking for greenwashing. You know, they're not looking for something that they can just say, oh, oh we've, we've put a few dollars into something and, and that's us tick the sustainable box. They want to have confidence in projects that are, are of very high quality and um, that, that are going to be monitored for quality and for long-term in- impact. And it's cities that can deliver those projects. We've got those projects that, that can fulfil those criteria and objectives that investors are looking for and that they want to have the confidence in. And so I think there's, there's a real two-way street of practical and pragmatic assistance that we can offer to each other here, but always with that understanding that we're in the same space for a reason. We're all living on the same planet. None of us are going to escape the impact of climate change. And so we have a shared purpose in a way that public and private sector perhaps have never had before that, you know, that we we don't need to work hard to find our shared purpose. It's right there in front of us. What we need to do the work on and what we are doing the work on is finding that particular sweet spot where we can come together and just deliver on everyone's ambitions and everyone's outcomes collectively. And that is so true. As you said, Susan, investors are looking for projects that are going to deliver benefits. They're not looking for a shortcut but they are looking for measurable project indicators that show what the quality of the project is and what it's going to provide for beneficiaries. And just as you said, you know, cities every day are taking stock of what's happening in local communities with citizens, know where the vulnerable folks are and what they need. I was just sitting down with some financial partners during COP, and one of the questions they asked is, how can we make sure that we're reducing vulnerability? So what you said is true. If we're able to showcase those projects, and cities really are able to elevate those projects that deliver on multiple benefits, then we can find the financing for for those projects. And I think you've really touched on how if we do mobilize these kinds of projects from the ground up, from cities, we can find ways for innovative finance to come in as well as traditional or blended financing mechanisms. Have you seen some of these mechanisms actually innovating in adaptation and resilience finance in Glasgow? Or what do you hope that might look like in the future? We're doing a lot of work on this just now as a city. We actually have appointed a a green economy manager within Glasgow City Council because we recognise that this was a skills gap. We have a a fantastic inward investment team, uh, literally award winning. They were very clear. They were like, this is not an area that we are expert in. This is not the kind of traditional inward investment that that cities have, uh, have worked on. 
So we recruited to fill that skills gap. And that's a big part of the work that we're doing is understanding where does public finance need to come in? Where do we need to to do that initial enabling investment um, through the public purse to deliver what is um, very clearly um, a, a public good? Where do blended finance models work? And where do we have projects where the investment case is, is so strong that we can actually, and, and the, the challenge here often is, is de-risking the project so that the um, an investor, a private investor, feels confident to come in and, and take the project on end to end, essentially, from the early enabling investment right through to delivery. And um, so we're, we're working just now to, to understand where the most appropriate innovation streams should come from and flow to. And, and I think that's um, going to be very important for us. We're not, I don't think we've, we've quite got to the space where we, we've got a, a total understanding of that yet, but we are growing that understanding. And I think adaptation particularly lends itself to blended finance models where we've got um, you know, things that, that clearly, if not on the scale of them, certainly the, the kinds of impacts that we're talking about are very clearly about the public good. They're, they're very clearly a space where the public sector has been in the past. And one of the examples that I, that I particularly like is um, anyone who visited COP26, who, who came to Glasgow for COP26, when you turned on the tap, to get a glass of water or to brush your teeth. The water that came out of the tap came from Loch Catrin, which is a, a freshwater loch in the, in the Trossachs Mountains to just to the north of Glasgow. And uh, over 100 years ago, um, in fact, getting on for 150 years ago now, the city fathers, they were all fathers then, had in, in common with um, many cities in, in the industrialised world at that point, had a, a growing city and, uh, and and growing levels of extremely poor housing, slum housing, essentially, which didn't have fresh water. And they worked with uh, the merchants in Glasgow at the time, um, the, the people with the money, worked with them and put together what we would now call a blended finance model to turn Loch Catrin into a reservoir um, and to put in pumping systems the same pumping systems of which are still used today or the basis of them are still used today to ensure clean, safe water supply for the entire city of Glasgow. So that that drinking water is still the drinking water that we use today. Now, that that was a crisis that they were facing. That was a a public health crisis on a very significant scale, which they recognised had to have a response that was of a matching scale. It had to be treated like an emergency and it needed the public and the private interests in the city at the time to work together and to deliver a shared solution which would benefit everyone. So cities have done this before. We're very good at it. There's there's lots of other cities could um, could deliver similar examples. One of my colleagues from Manchester in England talked about um, their, their canals network, for example, exactly the same kind of thing. We've been doing this for a long time. Um, we need to, in some ways, rediscover uh, how to do it again and to do it at the scale and with the same sense of urgency and the same sense of understanding that we're dealing with an emergency as 
both the city leaders and the great and the good of of, um, the city merchants did in Glasgow uh, back in the 1860s. It's a fantastic example of how planning 150 years ago, but with strategic foresight and urgency, that combination of skills and that combination of qualities of decision-making really led to such an incredible result, which now is paying off for generations in the future. And I think that that is really a perfect segue into my last question, which is really about this decade, which some call the decade of doing. And you know, with each COP, we have more and more pressure to act, as you said in, in the opening. What's the message that you would give to those who, like you, are leading and implementing climate action on the ground? What's your personal advice? I mean, it, it has to be um, just do it. You, you, you will have all sorts of barriers that stand in the way, but you just need to, as much as you can, either ignore them or, or, or move them as fast as you possibly can. You know, there are all sorts of things. Uh, you, you were talking earlier, Lauren, and, and I think this is very important, that cities have an inbuilt quality monitor. We, When we invest money in, in our places and in our people, we are always watching for impact because public finance is scarce. And, you know, we, we need to be careful that, that where we put it is the right place and is delivering the right outcomes that we need. But sometimes that uh, has has put up systems that are can be a bit cumbersome. Uh, public procurement can also be a bit cumbersome. This is an issue that we've come up against in Glasgow, and I've literally had conversations with senior officer colleagues about this in the past couple of days about how we we shift those barriers and how we we have a a different approach to risk appetite than we might traditionally have in the public sector. Because we can't afford to be cautious here. That doesn't mean to say that we throw caution out the window. As my chief executive said to me, we want to be cutting edge, not bleeding edge. But the cutting edge part is really, really important. It is about, you know, nearly all cities now talk about innovation um, and innovation being part of our, our ecosystems. We need to get that innovation right into the approaches that we're taking to get in our projects underway and delivering them right now and also to financing them. It doesn't mean taking foolhardy risks with public finance, but it does mean understanding that that we will need to take a different approach than we have previously when it comes to the, the pace and scale of delivery. We can't have this being the decade of trying to find the money and then start delivering at the end of it. It needs to be the decade of doing the decade of delivery right now, because by the time we get to 2032, the the impacts are going to be incredibly severe, you know, and, and the IPCC reports are have spelled that out in the starkest terms. And so there there is you need to innovate, we need to experiment. We need to be open to collaboration and partnerships uh, in a way that we, we perhaps haven't before or different kinds of collaborations and partnerships. Uh, we need to understand that if we're serious about treating this as an emergency and, and cities around the world have declared a climate emergency, then we, we need to respond and, and behave um, in a way that's an emergency as well. I am very, very aware of, of the challenge that that poses for 
municipal governance. You know, it's, it's a new thing for a lot of us, but it's also an opportunity. And um, let's grasp that opportunity because while we are delivering climate action, we're also going to be delivering on the very deep-seated uh, social and, and economic inequalities that exist in all cities to a greater or lesser degree, but which we have often treated as insoluble, as, as something that we will always have to live with and, and work around to a certain extent. Our response to the climate emergency, as indeed our response to COVID, has shown that nothing is insoluble. Um, that there, there is no problem that cities face, no matter how long it has existed, that there aren't solutions to out there. And very often, the solutions to what we need to deliver uh, in terms of climate action are also the solutions to some of those deep-seated levels of, of deprivation that we have in our cities. In Glasgow, fuel poverty and energy poverty is, is one of the big examples. Um, as we deliver on adaptation and mitigation and our journey to net zero simultaneously. Um, if we do it right and we make sure those investments are done well, we are also going to deliver immediate benefit for our citizens who are facing a cost of living crisis and some of whom have been living in poverty for, for decades. This is the time. It is a case of if not now, when? If you have ever felt frustrated as a city leader that the pace of change uh, that you want isn't there. Um, this is the time to get your officials, to get your systems, to get your entire city infrastructures in place to make sure that the pace is there and to deliver multiple benefits. City leader Susan Aiken, thank you for sharing with us your wisdom and your inspiring words of action to do it, to accelerate the pace of action and also that shining hope that cities are not alone in this, that the solutions are out there and can be shared between cities to do this. Thank you again for your cutting edge leadership. We appreciate your time and your sharing with the Urban Exchange audience today. Thanks very much, Lauren. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks go to Councillor Aitken for her time spent with Lauren for this episode. From their conversation, we can see just how important the last two editions of COP have been for promoting the necessary urgency around the climate crisis. But more than that, we can understand the steps cities like Glasgow have taken to increasingly position themselves as leaders on global climate action and resilience. Through finance, innovation, and the breaking down of barriers in these areas to promote new types of business models and partnership, there is cause for optimism as cities move to battle back against climate change. Cities on the Frontline will be back at the beginning of 2023 with a brand new episode. But until then, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. We'll catch you next time.